uh, Mark chapter 7. And one of the reasons why I felt compelled just to start this off by saying we repent, we are still learning, we are still growing, that sort of thing, is um, here in, in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees think they know what they're doing. The Pharisees think they have it all figured out, and they don't. And so they meet, they go to Jesus and say, you don't have this, you don't do what we typically do. You don't ascribe to the, to the traditions of the elders. What do you think that you're doing? And, um, and Jesus, Jesus gave them the real intent of the law. He said, you, you honor me with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. And as a church and as a people that follow Jesus in San Francisco, we do not want to be a people or a church that honor God with our lips, but our hearts are not close to God. Jesus came to bring us near to the Father. And we believe that, and we see that in Scripture, and so we don't want to be a mess. So if we start by repenting, maybe if you start this morning um, listening to this uh, listening to uh, this being read, repenting, if you in your heart right now go, Lord, I'm sorry when I make church or God or something, things that it's not about, and I'm sorry when I get religious and self-righteous, forgive me. If, if you start there, it's a good thing. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, if you just say that to God, I have no idea what he's talking about. Would you help me? That's a good place to start as well. Let me read this to you, and, uh, and then I'll pray. Verse 7, we'll read down to verse 13. Or chapter 7, read down to verse 13. Verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come up, who had come from Jerusalem, come down from Jerusalem, they, uh, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Parentheses. This is a little bit of commentary that Mark gives us here for us Gentiles that have no idea what this means. For the Pharisees and all the Jews who do not, uh, do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not enter unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And they said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever uh, reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever, uh, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition." That you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray. Lord, we will not be as um, ignorant or naive to think that we don't sometimes fall underneath this category, whether it's on the super liberal side or the super conservative side. No matter what it is, us being our own gods or us thinking that we worship you by doing all this stuff. And so first, we just repent and we just say, God, would you help us? 
We know that our hearts are at rest when they're near you, that your intent for giving us your word, for sending Jesus, is to bring us near to God. And there's times, Lord, where we just make it something it's not supposed to be. So this morning, we just submit ourselves underneath your word, and Jesus, would you teach us? For those that have no idea what I'm talking about, God, would you meet with them? Would you show them? Would you, um, would you show us Jesus together and show how our lives can be close and near to God because of Christ? Would you please anoint me this morning, God, my, my mouth and my heart, I submit to you, and I ask that you would speak to us collectively together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the book of Mark, we've been looking at this book now for several months, and it's this fast-paced. That's why I like the book of Mark. If you've been reading the book of Mark, what's rad about the book of Mark is it's fast-paced. If you like fast-paced movies or fast-paced novels, you would like the book of Mark. Read it if you have not read it in its entirety from beginning to end without stopping. It's very fast-paced. It picks up really fast, and it's basically this fast-paced, sweeping narrative of Christology, of who Christ is. And in the book of Mark, he's telling us the story, the true story of Jesus, who Jesus is, and why Jesus came. And so the book of Mark starts like this. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So from the very beginning, Mark lets us, the audience, the people that are reading this book, he lets us know who Jesus really is. He reveals who he is to us first. But We're now in chapter 7 of this book, and the people in this narrative, no matter how close or far away they are to Jesus, no matter if they are for him or against Jesus, everyone is still wrestling with who Jesus is, and we're in chapter 7. We're almost halfway done with the book, and the disciples, the Pharisees, the crowd, the people, everybody is still wrestling with, okay, who is this Jesus? And you might have been here now for several months coming on Sunday, and you're still wrestling with who is Jesus. And the way that Mark writes this book, he leaves in all the tension and uses all the conflicts as they arise, and each scene builds on the next. And Mark is saying, keep reading, keep looking, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, because as you do, you will know who he really is. He starts to unfold this narrative of who Jesus is as he's unfolding this book before us. Now, Mark's story of Jesus isn't written in the imperative mode. And the imperative mode means simply this. It's what's required of us. Mark isn't writing in the imperative mode going, hey, guys, hey, people reading this book, this is what's required of you. Now, the Bible does have the imperative mode in it, but this book is more of the indicative mode. That is what God is revealing to us. So this book is revelatory. This book is showing us who Jesus is, his nature, his character, his worth. And these things have been revealed to us that we might know who Jesus really is and why the kingdom of God has come to earth in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, I know there are many of us, and I was once one of these people. I did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up going to church. I went to catechism for like a a month maybe, and then went to church twice growing up. That was it. No church. When people asked me to go to church, I said it's against my religion to go to church, but I had no idea what that meant. Like, this is against my religion. What's your religion? Dave. And Dave says, no church. And that was my religion. I did not go to church. I did not grow up in church. So 
I made up my own Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's where you're at. You've kind of made up your own Jesus. You, 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 you had this collection of spiritual sayings that you've assembled and put together over the years from conversations that you've had, and maybe some books that you've read, or your schooling, or your grad work, or different churches, or a couple episodes of Oprah. And you add that all together, and then like, boom, there's your Jesus. Like, all these things that you've kind of collected and assembled, and that's who Christ is. Let me give you an example. You guys know that Jesus ate and drank with sinners. And you're like, that's my Jesus. That's the Jesus I could get behind. See, that's a Jesus that likes, he could get down with people, he could party, he's still there, he's a spiritual leader, he's a spiritual guy, but he can still get down with people and party with them. I like that Jesus. That's my Jesus. Some of you guys know that Jesus ministered and served the poor. That's who Jesus is. He cared about social issues. I can get behind that Jesus. Now, what if I said that Jesus took the Bible and the part of the Bible that most of us have the hardest time reading, the Old Testament. Jesus took the Old Testament as authoritative, the authoritative word of God, and he based his whole life on it. He based his thinking on it, his actions on it, and his heart on it. He based his mind, his will, and his emotions on the Bible. And he taught that we are to completely obey its intended meaning, completely. You're like, ah, uh, no, I like the wine-bibber Jesus a little bit better than that Jesus. I mean, there's no way I could take that way. He, he took the Bible serious. He actually believed that Old Testament thing. There's no way. Yes. And this is the problem. We, we kind of make up our own Jesus, a Jesus that, that we make up. And this is, the, this is the big problem with making up our own Jesus. The Jesus that you and I make up can never challenge you. It can never change you. It can never save you. You've made up a God in your own image, and it can't challenge you, change you, redeem you, rescue you. And in our text this morning, Jesus, he accuses these scribes and these Pharisees of the same exact thing. This very thing, they've replaced God's word with their own words. They were replacing God's love with self-love, and they made themselves their own God. So we'll look at this section here in two parts. Um, this morning. Part one, the deception of religion, and the second part, which is a small part at the end, the desire for our heart. So first of all, the deception of religion. This is what Jesus was really getting at here when he was talking about the way that these people did things. He was saying that their religion was really deception. And this is how. The reason why religion, and it's cloaked here under the traditions of the elders, if you guys remember that from what we read, the traditions of the elders, the reason why religion is so deceptive is the first number one is this religion carries with it this idea that you can clean yourself religion carries with it this idea that you can clean yourself that you can fix yourself that you can keep your life so together that god wants to accept you in verse one and two it says that some of the Pharisees and the scribes had come down from Jerusalem and were watching and observing Jesus and his disciples. Now, remember the crowds. There's tons of people following. This is the height of his popularity. Tons of people are following Jesus. The, the Pharisees and the scribes come down from Jerusalem again. They come down, and they're observing. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. In chapter 2 and 3, if you remember, they went and they looked and they spied out Jesus and his disciples and they saw Jesus walking through a grain field in chapter two, at the end of chapter two. And they looked at him going, see what he's gonna do. And it's on Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on Sabbath. 
But him and his disciples were hungry. So they grabbed grain. They grabbed this grain, they rubbed it in their hands, and they started to eat it. And then the, the Pharisees were like, work, that's work, you can't do that. You can't grab, you can't thresh grain and, and thresh it in your hands and then eat it. That's work. See, this is the epitome of religion. I'm hungry, you can eat. Can I use a fork? You can't use a fork. Can I lift up my hand to my mouth? No, that's work. Well, how do I eat then? Well, it looks like you can't eat then. See, this is religion. I want, I'm walking through the grain fields, I want to eat. Can I eat this? Well, yeah, you can. Just not today. Well, how do I get this grain in my mouth? Well, you, you, can't, you can't grab it. It's work. Well, can I just like bite, nod off? Well, that's, that's work too. And this is, this is the epitome of religion. And then they walk right from there, they walk right into a synagogue. And there's a man with a withered hand. And he's sitting there. And Jesus looks at them. And then the Pharisees go, oh my gosh. Look what's going to happen. See the guy with the withered hand? Like one of them probably points it out. Look at See the guy with the withered hand? Look at Jesus looking at him. He's going to heal him. Watch. And it's Sabbath today. And that's work. You can't do that. And Jesus knows, and this is like the sub, one of the subtexts of the book of Mark, Jesus can read hearts. So he knows what the Pharisees are thinking. So he looks at the Pharisees, and he looks at this, withered, this man with this withered hand, and he knows, he knows that the Pharisees are going, you better not. You better not heal this man. And Jesus says, man, stand up. Come up here, stand up. And this man with the withered hand comes to the front. The last place he probably wants to be with his hand. And then Jesus said, is it right to kill or to give life on the Sabbath? What's the intent of the law? The Pharisees are like, you better not. He goes, stretch forth your hand. And the guy stretches out his hand, and he's healed. And the Pharisees are like, we're going to go now and plot your murder. We're going to go see how we can kill you now. I mean, that's kind of breaking a Ten Commandment, one of them, but it doesn't matter. We hate you. This is what religion does. Now, this is nothing new here. So when the Pharisees are now back, they're watching Jesus to see, how do we catch this guy in a trap? He's doing things that are not lawful. Well, they see that the disciples are eating, and they're not washing their hands before they eat. Some of you who like, carry the anti-back in their purse and stuff might get a little freaked out by this. Like, I would, I'm on the Pharisee side here. Totally understand. I'm going out to get food afterwards, and somebody doesn't wash their hands and use a baby wipe and anti-back, I'm grossed out by that. I don't double dip in, in the salsa. It's, it's, it's just a no-brainer for me. Now, I've confessed a little bit about my OCD already before. I like things clean. I, actually, before the church started, we used to have prayer meetings, and, one, and a couple of them were in my house, and all these people were in my house, and they were leaving, and as they, as they left, I, I febrezed the house. And um, I got caught for breezing the house. Like, as soon as they left, I don't know what it is. I, it's, I'm weird. I understand that. And so I go to the closet. I grab the Febreze. I'm freezing the house. I'm going. I get right by the door. And then someone walks back in. And like, I forgot something. I'm like, mid-squirt. Like, and they looked at me. And I'm like, are you Febrezing? I'm like, no. I'm not. I mean, so I'm, I'm a little weird when it comes to hygiene. A little weird. This is not what it's talking about. This is not talking about hygiene here. This is not at all what they're getting at. This is, this is about ritual washings. Because Mark's audience was made up of a lot of Gentiles. He gives us a little commentary. Okay, that's why the, the parentheses were used. I, I kind of hit that part when we were reading through it. I kind of like noticed parentheses here. Mark gives a little commentary for us. There are Jewish people here. There's a lot of us that are Gentiles. We don't know what's going on. So he gives us some commentary. And this is what he says. Verse 3. For the Pharisees, and note, all the Jews, 
All the Jews do this. Do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. Mark's like, I don't have time to go into all of them. There's tons. Each, uh, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I mean, they're washing couches, maybe for breathing. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Pharisees and the scribes had this obsession with being clean, and they said it was because of the tradition of the elders. Now, what we can read in there is the oral law. There was the written law that was God's word, and then there was the oral law that was tacked onto God's word. And it says that the disciples never washed their hands. They never did, even when they came from public places full of unclean and sick people. And notice, Mark says that all the Jews washed their hands. Not to, to, to not wash your hands then, what that meant was you were entirely anti-Jewish. You were un-Jewish. That's against tradition. That's a very un-Jewish thing to do, not wash your hands. All the Jews do it. Why aren't you doing it? And yet, this is exactly what these disciples were doing. They were going in and eating food without washing their hands. Now, these ritual washings that, that these Pharisees were doing, they pointed to the Jewish people, how the Jewish people could be one of the only clean people in the world. They're the only ones, they're the only people who can worship God, and their worship was acceptable to God because they were clean. And in a Jewish worldview, the world was filled with people who defiled them every single day. And this is why Mark says that they would wash when they came back from the marketplace. This was a post-exilic world. This was after the exile. Israel wasn't just Jewish anymore. It was filled with Jew and Gentile. It was multicultural. And the way that they stayed clean and acceptable to God was by all these washings from these dirty citizens that lived around them all the time. And these Pharisees wanted to know, when they looked at Jesus and they asked him this question, why don't your disciples wash themselves clean and make themselves acceptable to God? It's important to note that these washings were extra biblical. They're not found in the Old Testament. The only time the Old Testament tells them to wash were the priests before they made sacrifice. They were not to wash this crazily all the time. They were added on. They were added later and called the tradition of the elders or the oral law. These were laws made up around the law of God so you would never get close to breaking the law. So they put all these boundaries. They called it a fence, which safeguarded people from breaking the law. Now, let me give you an example, because you're, you're probably not understanding this right now. Here's an example. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, do not be drunk. Do not get drunk. Okay, so the Bible says that. It would be like me coming in this morning and said, okay, I'm going to start a new oral law this morning, a new law for this church. And the law is, because I don't want anyone to get drunk, no alcohol for anybody. And everybody said, amen. Right on. No alcohol. Okay, we could do that. No alcohol at all. But then someone in the back goes, whoa, wait, what does that mean? Like no alcohol at all? What about NyQuil? What if I'm sick? <laughs> what about rum cake? And these are legit questions. And so we, we have this council. We have a meeting. Okay, okay, okay. No NyQuil at all because you could get really messed up on that stuff. Okay? So no NyQuil. 
But rum cake, okay, you can eat rum cake, but it, it, it can only have two tablespoons of rum and no more. And it must be baked at 450 degrees for 45 minutes, even though it won't be as soggy and rummy. But you still can't. And you can't pour the rum on at the end because there's alcohol that's not baked out. If you do that, you can have your rum cake. And then, so that was our loss. But then you go out and you're hanging out with a friend and you see one of our ushers or greeters enjoying a glass of wine. You're like, oh my gosh, sinners. Look at these sinners. They're, they're, not, they're not breaking the law that says do not be drunk. They're just enjoying it. But you go, they're breaking the law of God or the law of reality. They're breaking the law. Look at them. They're sinners. And then you, you abide by the law. You actually, you're self-righteous. What you comfort yourself with when you feel that your life sucks is that at least I don't drink alcohol. At least I'm pure. At least I'm holy. At least God accepts me because no alcohol has been in this body. That's religion. That's what they were doing. They were tacking on things to the law. And when they tacked it on, they felt so good about themselves. And if you and I were that religious, what would happen is when someone new came to church and we went out with them and they ordered a glass of wine, we'd tell them, why do you do that? Don't you know that Jesus doesn't love that when you drink wine? And then you add on to them the commandments of men. This is the crux of religion. And made Jesus vomit. He hated religion. They were all concerned about being clean, and in the midst of being clean, they rejected being a light to the Gentiles. Instead of being a witness to the Gentiles, they're like, oh, don't touch me, dirty Gentile. Don't touch me. I have to wash myself and Annie back, and I just can't be around this filthy world. I must stay clean and pure, and they've rejected their very call to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus hates this. The Pharisees thought that these laws cleansed them and made them acceptable to God. But the irony is, and this, I, this is the ironic part of this whole thing, because, you know, Mark loves irony. The ironic thing is that they, it didn't make them clean, and it actually kept them from God. These religious rules kept them from God. And this is why religion is, religion is so deceiving. Because you can't cleanse yourself. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. And religion says you can you can make yourself acceptable to God. The second reason why religion is deceiving is because religion replaces God. That's what was going on here. Jesus called these Pharisees, you hypocrites. That's what he said to them. That's not a fun title. If somebody calls you a hypocrite, you're not like, thank you. That was, that's encouraging. That builds me up. Like, that's a bad, bad word. Now, the word was borrowed from the Greek theater. It meant to play a part on the stage. Actors then, they didn't wear makeup so much as they wore masks on the stage, de de depicting their different roles. And the, the word came to mean someone who acts a role or is a pretender. That's what the word came to mean. So someone who puts on this outward facade but is a different person behind the mask. Kind of like actors today. Do you ever, have you ever ran into one of your favorite actors somewhere and you totally just thought that they were that actor that, that your favorite show is, but you don't realize that like other people that like have a different name? I remember hearing an interview with uh, Kiefer Sutherland and he's like, everybody calls me Jack. And the first couple seasons I was really mad, but now I just embrace it. I just go with it. Like people see me like, Jack, watch out. Whoa, whoa, what do you got, dude? Calm down. 
Like, are you going to snap my neck or like bite my ear? Like, what are you going to do? Like, you're crazy. And, and that's what we do. I remember one time my wife and I were flying to Hawaii and uh, Hurley from Lost was on our plane and that's not a good sign. And, um, <laughs> and so we were on our way and I'm like, I see him and I wanted to go up to him and go, Hurley, dude, or something. But it's, that's not his name. And he probably doesn't even talk like that. Like if you walked up to your favorite actor and you started like telling them their part and they're like, that's not me. And you're like, hypocrite. <laughs> such a hypocrite. That's exactly what they are. That's what this word means. Like they're acting a part. And Jesus is saying that these Pharisees were acting a part. They were playing a part. That's not really who they were. They weren't these people who were really washed because the outside was washed, but the inside was dirty. It was called a synecdoche, if you know what that word means. It's like the, the you honor me with your lips represents their whole outside. It's like the part represents the whole. Like if I said I'm counting heads in here, I'm actually counting people, but I just kind of use heads to represent the whole. The lips represent this whole outward facade, and then the heart represents all the inward motives. Jesus says, you honor me with everything on the outside. You're clean on the outside. Your hands are so clean and so disinfected, but your heart's filthy, and your motives are wrong. You're a hypocrite, and that's what he's saying to them. And so, this, in the Old Testament, this, this word even had this other different meaning that everything outwardly, all these commitments done outwardly, were divorced from the intentions of the heart. So, you know the number one complaint that the church hears all the time? People that don't go to church or people that do go to church. What's the biggest complaint, complaint against the church? The church is full of hypocrites. I agree that the church is full of sinners, broken, broken people. Jesus is saving and putting back together. Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus is making himself a pure, spotless bride. But I would also agree and repent that there are people in the church that think because they go to church or they go to a certain church and have these morals and certain things about them, and they have this way that they live, and they own a Bible, and they actually read it, and they give their money that they're better than other people, and they get self-righteous, and they get this self-righteous pride that looks down on others because they can't perform the religious life that well, and then we say to them, get your act together, which is funny because it is all, all an act. Why don't you get your act together as a Christian? Why don't you act like a Christian more? The way that we should approach God and the way that we should come to church, I want you to remember this. The way that you and I should come to church and should approach God is without masks on our faces and without barriers on our hearts. We all need to come to church and own up to the fact that we're all screwed up. I know some of you, we're all screwed up. And for those who have surrendered to Jesus, who have believed in Christ, he is taking our screwed up lives and making them whole and holy. And this is what God does. And as a pastor, I love this process. I love watching people be made whole. A couple months ago, um, right after church, someone came up to me and started to describe how Jesus was changing her. Absolutely changing her. And then she's just like, got real, real. And she's like, I just thought that this whole God thing was a bunch of B. And she starts dropping cuss words like crazy. And she goes, but God is so real. And you know what? Satan is beep, real too. And she's like, boom. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, awesome. You know, now I wasn't excited that she was cussing, but I was excited that she wasn't like putting on some fake thing. 
She wasn't coming up and going, um, pastor, PTL, PTL, or anything like that. She was being right, and I wasn't embracing the fact that she was necessarily using profanity. I was embracing the fact that that's who she was right then, and she wasn't trying to hide it. She was, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and, and I'm like, no, no, don't, don't, don't apologize. Um, I'm, I'm in the process of God changing me as well. When we are real like that, we're like, we could go to small groups, and we could go to church, and we're like, God is changing me. But if you're like, this is who I am, just deal with it, and I'm mean and harsh, and I'm a punk, but just deal with it, that's a whole different spirit and attitude altogether. But when we both and we all understand, we're, God is changing us. And we don't come in with masks on. We don't come in acting like we have it all together. And the outward appearance, these Pharisees looked impeccable since they observed all kinds of these laws and these commandments. But it was a lie because they had not surrendered themselves to God. They had not given their hearts to Christ. See, this is the way God sees it. There's a, a parable in Luke's gospel. That's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Basically, it's a parable of how God sees these two people, how God sees them. So when God looks down and he sees a Pharisee religious person, and when God looks down and sees someone else, how does it look? Luke chapter 18. Let me read it to you. It's a really good parable. And he also told this parable, it says, to someone who trusted in themselves, see, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector next to me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The guy, this Pharisee, he wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping himself. He said, hey God, let's talk about me for a minute. See how I'm not like them and me and me and me, not even like this guy. Let's talk about me, God, can we? And this other man, it's like, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. You and I can't keep some righteous, fake life and look up to God and go, do you like what you see, God? Do you like this? I mean, I'm pretty righteous, right? I'm pretty amazing. I mean, I have my stuff together. I've memorized John 3, 16. <laughs> a lot of times we obey the rules and keep a righteous life so we can say that we've done the right thing. So we can feel like we're righteous people. So God has to bless us, and he has to give us a good life. That's why we obey. That's why we keep pure lives. Do you see the life I live, God? God, you have to love me because you have to bless me. I mean, look at me. When all my other friends are doing this, I am not. When all my other coworkers are getting ahead in their careers by doing that, I'm not. I'm righteous. See, the problem is, 
when you base your spirituality on self-righteousness, when you go through a storm, when you go through a life storm, a career storm, a relationship storm, your life crumbles, does it not? I mean, it falls apart as it seems. And you know why it falls apart? Because you don't think you deserve it. You're like, listen, God, I've stayed pure for you for 10 years, and this, this is what you give me? You owe me. And I've done this for you and that, and I've, I've done all these things for you, God. Look at me, and you become that Pharisee that stands, look at me, I'm not like other men. And our life falls apart because we think we deserve something from God. God, I deserve this because I obeyed. Some of you, that's why you walked away from God or stopped attending church or whatever, because you did the religious thing through high school or college, and God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. You deserve to be blessed because you obeyed, but God didn't. See, religion has this awful way of replacing God with moral effort and self-love. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Listen to what you do. You replace God with yourself. You reject God's word and you replace it with yourself. Now, the way that the Pharisees were doing this was called, the tradition was called Corban, which means offering to God. And basically what this meant was the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. And so what that meant was, and all the commandments of God have this forward pointing momentum all of it, all of them. So it's not about honor your father and mother. It's actually about loving them and, and, and serving your father and mother. It's not just do not commit adultery, but love your neighbor. It's not about don't have any other gods before me, but love your God. It like points forward. So one of them was, number five was honor your father and mother. Now the way that they would do this was when parents got old, they would provide for them and care for their mom and dad. But some people were like, but I don't want to give up my land. When my parents get old, I don't want to, I want to give up my land in order to serve my parents because they're going to die anyways. I need my land. And so the Pharisees came up with this thing, well, call it Corbin. Give it to God. If you give it to God, then the parents can't take it. And this is what they were doing. One commentator said, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, Corbin, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. And this is what they were doing. And the Pharisees left the word of God and established their own religion, their own God, and they were rejecting the command of God to honor your father and mother, and they were obeying the traditions of men, the cultural norms, and by that, they were rejecting the commandments of God. This is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if you fail to honor the unique authority of the Bible, you fail to worship God. That's a pretty gnarly thing to say in this city. You fail to, to understand the authority of the scriptures, you fail to worship God. If you let human traditions or what your heart say or what your emotions say or what the experts say have equal authority with the Bible, you fail to worship God and you create your own God. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. They had replaced God's love with self-love and God's law with man's tradition. Having made themselves their own gods, they were insisting that others follow them or perish. Now, I've showed you how this happens in conservative circles. Let me really briefly show you how this happens in liberal circles as well. There are certain liberal churches, a lot of them in this city, that fight their denomination, their local church, their pastors, or whatever. They fight because they have rights. They have the right in the city. They fight and, they, and especially in the city, and they win. 
But just when they get the church the way that they want it, supporting all the causes they want it to support, reflecting everything they think should be law, Jesus is gone. I've heard that from multiple people and staff members of churches in the city. When a church gets so liberal that they keep battling and winning all their fights, at the end, they all turn around, they're like, where did Jesus go? Religion, in its conservative form or in its liberal form, replaces God with us. We worship us. In verse 6 and 7, Jesus says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What Jesus is saying is that religious tradition is deceiving because, in our last point, is because in religion, you miss the intent. You miss the heart. And this is the intent. The intent is the desire for God to have our hearts. The intent is the desire for our heart to be near God. That is the intent of the entire Bible. The entire Bible is one story through a lot of different genres telling a single story. God wants us to be near him. God wants us to be invited into, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the divine dance of the Trinity. God wants to invite us in to be near himself. St. Augustine said in Confessions, the very beginning of it, he says, Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Pascal said that God, only God, can fill our heart, can fill our God-shaped vacuum. Only God can. More specifically, he said that every human heart has an infinite abyss that can only be filled with the infinite. That's why religion, self-purification, or self-love doesn't work. It can't possibly fill that void. It's too big to be filled with good works or noble deeds or self-worship. See, the central conflict and the real problem the Pharisees had with Jesus was this. What is the way to salvation? How do you get salvation? How does somebody draw near to God and stay near to God? And the Pharisees said, and they believed, you please God and you stayed near to God by keeping religious traditions, staying very far away from becoming unclean. You stayed in relationship with God if you did all the right things, including washing. And Jesus came with a different view altogether. He came with a different message. The way to God The way Jesus brought the way of God, the way to God was realizing that God had come near to you because in all your moral efforts, in all your self-righteousness, you can never reach God, so God came down. Now, you know what's another ironic piece here? Was that the reason why the Pharisees wanted Jesus to wash was because this is why you had to wash if you were a Pharisee. If you came into contact with lepers, sinning tax collectors, Gentiles, menstruating women, tombs, and corpses. What has Jesus been doing for seven chapters? He's all about those people. He's all around, and they watch him, he's around all these people. He's healing the woman with the issue of blood. He's raising the little dead girl to life again. He's touching lepers. He's in tombs, releasing people from titanic bondage. 
He's not getting dirty. He's actually making them clean. And this is, this is how you draw near to God. The way of salvation is to realize God graciously saves sinners. Coming to church and being part of a liturgy cannot save you, and it cannot cleanse you. I mean, every church has a liturgy. Our liturgy is not 700 years old. It's like eight months old. Like, we have, we have a liturgy. There's a liturgy here. It's just not as ancient as some other liturgies. But every church has a liturgy. And you can't expect to come to this church and go through the reality liturgy, and then by that, I'm made clean. Well, you might be touched. You might feel better. You might have some emotional or even spiritual experience. But the source of defilement is the heart. And it remains unaffected until you believe the gospel of Jesus. You have to sense it in your heart. You can learn the truth that we are sinners and that we need the grace of God, but until you sense it in your heart that you're a sinner and that you need, to, you need Jesus, until that comes home to you, not that Jesus died generally, but he died for you and your sins, and you need to repent. That's how we begin to draw near to God, is by seeing Jesus who he is, and what he has come to do. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Everything in the scriptures point to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. So let us turn to God let us repent and pray and be like that tax collector who couldn't even raise his eyes up to heaven but said, please, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your wonderful and awesome love. And I pray this morning that, that we wouldn't waste an opportunity to turn our hearts towards you, that you would really change our hearts, God. We we, uh, we confess, Lord, that we're broken people. A lot of us are very, very broken. And we need to be put together. We need to be made whole. We need to be made holy by you. And I pray it would come as we believe in Christ and what you've done to save us. And we turn our heart towards you, Lord. And we turn our mind towards you. And we say, Lord, make us not these people that honor you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.